Welcome to the Old Roads Podcast, a podcast that seeks to bring the wisdom of the past to the challenges of the present. I'm your host, Aaron O'Kelly. I'm a pastor and a theological educator. It's my intention with this podcast to devote one episode per month to questions and answers. I've uh, received uh, several questions, a number of questions from others, uh, and I intend to answer a few of those here today. So I have the questions here, as, as Rush Limbaugh used to say, in my formerly nicotine-stained fingers. Now, in my case, I don't have formerly nicotine-stained fingers because I never smoked. So I tried to think of what could I say when I'm holding a paper uh, I, I could say that my fingers are formerly Cheeto-stained because there have been times in the past when I've eaten Cheetos, and uh, they were definitely stained, but they are not at this moment. So I'll say from now on, in my formerly Cheeto-stained fingers, not that I've given up eating Cheetos, just that I, I don't have Cheeto-stained fingers at the present moment. So uh, here's a question that was submitted. Why did God tolerate polygamy in the Old Testament. And I do think that's a, a great way to put the question because it seems he did, at least in, in, in some ways, tolerate polygamy or the marriage of one man to multiple women. Clearly, polygamy in the Old Testament is not treated in the same category as adultery, which adultery in, in that setting would then have to be defined as, as taking the wife of another man. Um, not merely having multiple women because a polygamist already has multiple women and yet is not considered an adulterer in that context, at least under the Mosaic law. And so this arrangement of having multiple wives, it clearly wasn't the same as adultery because it, it did not involve the death penalty. Um, the adultery was, was clearly taking sexual sin to another level beyond polygamy. But why would God even tolerate polygamy if it wasn't in line with his creation pattern for marriage? I think we can get some insight into what God was doing if we look at Jesus' teaching on divorce specifically in Mark chapter 10. So in Mark 10, uh, we read starting in verse 2, and some Pharisees came up and in order to test him asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together... Let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. So what's going on in this passage? Pharisees come to Jesus and test him by asking him to take a side in the question of what is the lawful basis of a divorce? There were some rabbis who were very conservative on that question, uh, who would argue that, that only adultery would be grounds for divorce from, from one's wife. Uh, and then others, rabbis were more liberal, who would say uh, that even if a, a wife burned her husband's dinner, he had justification to divorce her. And so they're essentially seeking to get Jesus to come down on one side of this question. And so Jesus uh, asked them, 
what did Moses command? And uh, their answer, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. That's from Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 to 4. Jesus then responds to them very significantly, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God is joined together, let not man separate. What in the world is Jesus doing there? He is telling his hearers that the law of Moses essentially came with its own accommodation to sinfulness. The law of Moses, in other words, does not on every question represent the highest moral ideal. It is accommodated to the sinfulness of man so that it regulates human sin. It bounds human sin to keep it from running wild. Uh, And so you, you do have provisions for divorce in the Mosaic law, but that doesn't mean that God approves of every divorce that would have been sought in the Mosaic Law. So, so you had regulation of divorce to protect the woman uh, in those cases of divorce, but that certainly does not mean that God gives his endorsement to every divorce that happened. And so Jesus is saying, we need to go back earlier than the Mosaic Law. The Mosaic Law is given in a sinful situation to regulate sinful hearts, but at the beginning in the Genesis account, God made them male and female and joined them together as one. And what God has joined together, let not man separate. Now, there are biblical exceptions in Matthew's gospel and in Paul that give uh, permission for divorce in certain circumstances. But Jesus says our, our understanding, our default mode should be that marriage is permanent. It's a permanent union of a man and a woman. And so, by going back to the beginning, Jesus shows that it is actually possible to commit adultery against your own wife. According to verse 11, uh, he said, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. Now, now keep in mind, in the Old Testament context under the Mosaic law, that probably would not have been understood because adultery would have been one sin, uh, a sin that one man committed against another man. Uh, a man could could uh, sin against another man by lying with that man's wife. So adultery was a sin from one man to another. But Jesus now applying his teaching from the book of Genesis says that if, if you even divorce for an illegitimate reason and then marry another, you've actually committed adultery against your own wife. So what does all this have to do with polygamy? I think you can reason in a similar way about polygamy, just as the Mosaic law had Uh, An accommodation for divorce doesn't mean that God approved of it. It just regulated divorce. And in a sense, it was regulating uh, adultery with certain measures. I think the same is true about polygamy. Monogamy is clearly the pattern at creation. One man and one woman were created and joined together. But polygamy was tolerated in a similar way that illegitimate divorce was tolerated under the Mosaic law. And yet, if you, if you look carefully at the story of the Old Testament, you'll see that wherever polygamy comes up, almost always it is presented in a negative way. Who is the very first polygamist in the Bible? It's Lamech, the descendant of Cain. In Genesis 4, 19, Lamech is presented as an ungodly and a violent man. And the fact that he has two wives is presented to us as something that is bad. 
something we should disapprove of. Of course, Abraham takes Hagar to be a wife alongside Sarah, uh, Hagar to be a, a concubine of sorts in Genesis 16. And that, of course, creates great tension within their family and shows that polygamy is not uh, God's design for good. Esau takes multiple wives in Genesis 26, and it's mentioned again in Genesis 28. And uh, of course, he's not being presented as a model there. Jacob takes multiple wives. He's actually tricked into it, but he, he takes both Leah and Rachel as his wife, and then their maidservants as well, eventually. And in Genesis 29 to 30, we see great tension in the family because of this arrangement. Gideon is a figure who has a harem. Uh, as he's presenting himself as something of a king, he's, he, de he denies that he wants to be king over Israel, and yet he takes actions that present himself as a king. And so in Judges 8.30, it's mentioned uh, that he had a harem, and, and that's certainly not being presented as a model. Uh, in 1 Samuel 1, Elkanah has two wives, uh, and that creates great tension in his family. David, the king, ended up taking uh, several wives to himself in violation of, of the command for kings in Deuteronomy 17, verse 17. And then preeminently, Solomon was a king who had 700 wives and 300 concubines. And this was particularly what led to his downfall uh, as king in 1 Kings 11. So polygamy is mentioned throughout the Old Testament in several contexts, but it's almost always presented in a negative way, which shows God's disapproval of it. When you get to the New Testament, you clearly have Jesus' teaching of that goes back to Genesis of one man and one woman. And significantly, in the qualification for church leaders, church elders in particular, in 1 Timothy 3, verse 2, an elder, which is a pastor, must be the husband of one wife, or in the Greek, a man of one woman. Now, it's debated exactly what Paul was uh, addressing specifically there, but it is abundantly clear that whatever particular issue Paul had in mind, polygamy would definitely be ruled out because you can't be the husband of one wife and be a polygamist. Now, does it also have application for divorce, remarriage? Uh, that's debated, but um, it definitely, I think all would agree, it definitely rules out polygamy as an option for church leadership. Now, if you go back and look at the qualifications for elders in 1 Timothy 3, with the exception of being able to teach, every other qualification is something that every Christian man should exhibit. And so, the qualifications for a pastor or an elder is that he simply be a mature Christian man. But what is expected of him, other than the ability to teach in the church, is expected of every Christian man. And thus, implicitly, you have in 1 Timothy 3, God telling us that every Christian man is expected to be, if he's married, a man of one woman. And thus, uh, the New Testament makes plain that polygamy was never God's intention. Uh, it does not fit the design that God had from the beginning, uh, and thus... Uh, the character of a Christian man is such that he should be a man of one woman. But a related question that I also received about this one was, what if a polygamous family sought to join your church? What would you do? And uh, I've never faced this situation, and I hope I never do. Uh, but if it happened, uh, it would be in our context here in America it would be at least as the law stands today, it would be similar to if a slave owner came 
and tried to join our church. Obviously, uh, slavery is is not legally permissible in the American context, and thus it would be very easy, I think, in that situation to say this is illegal and it's immoral, and therefore you need to repent. Uh, and so, calling on a, a polygamist in this context to repent and to um, to to uh, obey the law as it's given in the land today uh, would be an important step to take. Uh, and also to, to say that in doing so, you do need to continue to fulfill your responsibilities to the women and children who have become dependent on you. So I'm, I'm not at all advocating uh, that, that women and children in this situation be cast off, uh, but that they be cared for, provided for, but yet they be uh, cared for and provided for in a legal and moral way. And what that looks like, uh, we would have to sort out case by case, I think. But, but uh, I do think we could call upon uh, a polygamous family to make some changes uh, in the American context today with polygamy still being illegal. Now, it's possible that in a future day, polygamy could be legalized. Uh, we're changing the definition of marriage in America, it seems like, um, constantly. And so is it possible one day polygamy might become legal? Uh, certainly is possible. And in that case, there might be some some additional challenges uh, to dealing with this situation that we would have to handle case by case. What about in a missionary setting? What if you were among a tribal people for whom this practice had been entrenched for generations? Well, there it might be handled somewhat differently. Uh, there, where the gospel has not yet transformed a society, it would be similar uh, to taking the gospel to a slave-owning society. So think about how the New Testament you see evidence of the gospel going into a society where slavery was a pervasive institution. Were slaves immediately freed? No. Um, you have example from the letters of the New Testament that, that there, there were Christians who continued to own slaves. And uh, even one letter written uh, about a runaway slave and, and Paul sending him back to his master. So, the gospel doesn't come and immediately overturn the structures of a society, but it begins to work its way into them and change those things over time. I think it did that with slavery. It changed, first of all, how masters treated slaves, and then eventually it undermined the institution itself. We may be dealing with a similar kind of thing with polygamy in a missionary setting where it's so entrenched in a culture, it may not be something that that has to be taken on right away in a head-on fashion, but rather it might be through patient instruction instilled within future generations that this is not God's ideal for marriage, and thus you could change the way future generations practice it. That's simply my armchair opinion at this time in my life. I've never been confronted directly with that question, uh, but that is, it is a very good one. Another question that was given to me was, what happens to believers when we die? This is really the question of what is called the intermediate state. And it's called intermediate because it comes between two things. It comes between our embodied life on earth and then our embodied life in the day of the resurrection. But between those two times, when the body is lying in the ground, we are in this intermediate state. And what happens to us, to us specifically if we are believers, what happens to us in the intermediate state? Well, there are a few passages of Scripture that are directly relevant to this. One is in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So in uh, 2 Corinthians 5, specifically in verses 6 through 9, Paul writes, So we are always of good courage. 
we know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. So Paul, in this context, speaks of being at home in the body and away from the Lord. But if we are away from the body, then we are at home with the Lord. So what that would indicate is that our spirit survives death and it immediately goes into the presence of the Lord. So uh, a believer who has died, uh, according to this passage and according to another, Philippians chapter 1, verses 19 to 24, uh, would go immediately into the presence of Christ. So uh, listen to what Paul writes in Philippians 1.19, For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. So what you have in this text is a clear indication that when we as believers die, we go to a situation that is far better than what we know now. We are in the presence of the Lord. And to be in his presence uh, in a mysterious way that, that really is beyond our ability to grasp at this time, but, but somehow outside the body, our spirit is present with the Lord. Uh, we go to be with him where we are free of sin, free of suffering, and in a situation that is far better than what we know now. Uh, some have argued for a doctrine known as soul sleep. Uh, this is the idea that we are simply not conscious between death and resurrection. But the Bible indicates that we are. It indicates that being with Christ, we experience the reality. It's not, not simply being unconscious and awaiting resurrection, but consciously we are with the Lord, experiencing the blessing of His presence in a way that is far better uh, than what we know in this life. And it is far better, at least in part, because of what the author of Hebrews tells us in uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 22 to 24, when he says, But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect." And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and the sprinkled blood that speaks better than the blood of Abel. I just wanted to highlight that phrase, the spirits of the righteous made perfect. That is, those who have gone before us, the righteous dead, their spirits are now made perfect in the presence of the Lord. That would be an indication that when believers die, something about us is made perfect. Of course, our bodies are not made perfect. That awaits the day of resurrection, but something about us. And I believe what the author of Hebrews is telling us is that all sin is purged from us. We have no more remaining sin uh, at the moment of death. 
uh, when we pass from this life into the presence of Christ, sin within us is no more. There's a profound sanctifying influence of the experience of death for the believer. And uh, as such, we go straight to the presence of the Lord. I've heard it described this way. We take our last breath on earth. And if you can envision it this way, our immediate next breath in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ, where we are made perfect with him. And so um, there's every indication in the New Testament that death for believers is not something to be feared. It's not a good thing. It's not something that we should uh, rejoice in as as a positive good. It is it is an enemy. Uh, it is the result of the fall and of the curse, and it, it will be overcome at the day of resurrection. But it is an enemy that has been rendered powerless over us, and for the believer, it ushers us into God's presence, and is therefore uh, something that we should not fear, and uh, something that we should take comfort in for our loved ones who have died, who are now with Christ. Another question, what is your view on oneness theology and churches that do not affirm the doctrine of the Trinity? That's a great question. Oneness theology uh, today is uh, taught among uh, at least one denomination uh, among Pentecostals, not all Pentecostals, but at least one denomination of Pentecostals. Uh, who hold to an idea that God is not Trinity. He is not essentially Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are roles that he plays or masks that he wears or or ways of revealing himself, but he is only one God uh, behind the three roles or the three masks of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is an ancient heresy called modalism. Uh, which is the the idea that God is not Trinity in Himself, but He He simply presents Himself as these three modes. Uh, this is a heresy, meaning it's a false teaching that strikes at the very heart of the gospel, and is outside the bounds of Christian orthodoxy. That was the decision of the church in the fourth century when it clearly affirmed the doctrine of the Trinity. And if you you look to the ancient creeds of the church, especially the Nicene Creed. Uh, the creed that was first uh, formed at the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD and then finalized at the Council of Constantinople in 381 AD, the, the central creed of the historic church, the Nicene Creed, it is a very clear confession of one God as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It is through the revelation of God in the Son and in the Spirit, the events of the Incarnation and Pentecost, in other words, the events of the gospel itself, that God has made himself known to us as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So the problem with modalism, our oneness theology, uh, among other things, is that we never truly know God. Uh, We only know God as he presents himself to us through these masks. But is he truly father? Is he truly son? Is he truly Holy Spirit? No, these are just the roles that he plays. But the God behind the masks is a God we never know. And thus modalism or oneness theology cuts us off from a true knowledge of God, a true um, intimate family relationship with the God who has redeemed us. It creates additional problems when you have, for example, Jesus praying to the Father 
in the New Testament or Jesus presenting a sacrifice on the cross to the Father? How can that relational dynamic be there if God is not truly Father and Son, and these are not distinct persons who in some way can relate to each other? So, oneness theology uh, is a, a heresy. Uh, it's a false teaching. It compromises the very heart of the gospel. Now, there may be uh, very good people who are involved in churches that that propound oneness theology. There may even be true believers who, in spite of the official teachings of, of their church, uh, have true saving faith uh, in these churches. But overall, I would say that any church that denies the doctrine of the Trinity is not a safe place for the gospel and thus uh, should not be regarded as a true Christian church. Well, I want to thank those who've submitted questions, and I hope that uh, next month I'll be able to do another episode to address more of them. But until next time, remember Jeremiah 6, 16, thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls.